right direction. Um, you know, I could get in a lot of trouble with this text this week. Um, we are going to be discussing our attitude toward the government, our attitude toward authority. And, you know, I still remember um, my, my grandpa and grandma had their 50th wedding anniversary in Savannah a few years back. And we all went down there. Everyone was there, grandparents, aunts, uncles, great aunts, great uncles, cousins, nephews. Everybody was there. We all sat down, pretty diverse group. We all sat down at the table to eat. My brother, senior in high school at the time, decides to look over and say, Hey, Grandma, who was knowingly a staunch Democrat at the time, says, Hey, Grandma, what do you think about President Bush? And it was like a nuclear bomb went off at that table. I'll tell you what, we had, I mean, I think we might have lost a great aunt in the line of duty there. It was, it got ugly. You know, I mean, the cardinal sin of not discussing politics or religion at the table, and that was violated. Because for whatever reason, for many reasons, politics is a very sensitive issue for us. And so because of that, I want to start with a word of prayer. Father, <laughs> I come to you and I, I ask that we as your people, we as your creation, would come this morning with open hearts and open minds, that we may hunger for your word, what you have to say to us. If there are areas of our lives that we need to be convicted of, that you would convict us this morning. If there are areas in our lives that we need to repent, that we would be willing to repent. Father, may we have one desire to meet with you this morning, to know you as you've revealed yourself in your word, and what you, our good, trustworthy, providing, sovereign Father, has for us. It's in your name we pray, amen. John Piper told a story about a man, his name was Doug Nichols. Doug Nichols was the director of Action International. Uh, he is now, but he grew up as a poor missionary, uh, you know, going throughout the entire world. In 1967, Doug found himself in India, found himself working with the poor and the outcast there, and uh, coming into contact with all those kind of people, Doug actually contracted tuberculosis, and so he was sent to a, a, sanita a sanitarium where he spent months with the sick and with the dying. And being a good missionary, even when Doug was there, he was trying to give away gospel tracts and, you know, the gospel of John to the, to the people that were there with him. In the but but the, those, the Indians that were there with him, they rejected that. He said, you're just some rich American. Now, in our standards, he wasn't rich, but to them, that's what they think of when they see an American. You're this rich American who's taking up one of our beds. Why would we accept anything that you have to say? So this carried on for a time, and, and with the tuberculosis, he would wake up at night in these extreme coughing fits. And, and, he would, and, and one morning, two in the morning, he wakes himself up coughing. And he looks over and he sees this man, this elderly man, who's sitting on the side of his bed and whimpering. He can't even move. Doesn't think a lot of it, goes back to sleep. The next morning he wakes up and the whole sanitarium just stinks, just reeks. And everyone there is mad at this guy because he wasn't able to contain himself. Even one of the nurses comes over and slaps him. Next morning, Doug wakes up again, coughing. Here's the man, softly crying over on his cot. Doug walks over to the man. The man kind of cowers in fear. He doesn't know what Doug's agenda is. And he, Doug comes over and he scoops him up in his arms. He carries him over to the bathroom, which is really a hole in the ground. When he was done, he took him back and laid him back into his bed. The man kisses Doug on the cheek. Two hours later, 4 a.m., Doug wakes up, 
to this bright pair of eyes that are blinking at him. It's another one of the Indians. And he looks in their hand, and she's holding a steaming cup of tea. And he takes it from her, and she points over to the corner, and he looks, and she's pointing to one of the tracks. She wants one. And all that morning, people are streaming over to Doug, asking him for the tracks and for the handouts. They want to know. Even though they couldn't speak his language, they wanted to know what Doug had to offer. Last week, we talked about the fact that we as a church are called, our purpose, we were put here on this earth to declare the praises of God. That's our function. We said our identity is that we're a chosen people, a chosen race that he possesses, that we've received his mercy, that we have been set apart as a kingdom of priests to be holy as he is holy, and that we're that so that we can declare how great our God is. The story of Doug Nichols teaches us that actions speak louder than words. How do we declare his praises to the end of the earth? They will not listen to us if we don't put feet to the good news. If we just tell the world and we don't show the world, they will not listen. And that's where, where Peter turns to next in this, in this passage. is so interesting. Where he goes is to how we conduct ourselves in specific relationships. And what he turns to in particular is how we conduct ourselves as citizens, as slaves, and as spouses. And it's, it's so interesting because this lofty idea of global evangelism, of declaring God's praises to the ends of the earth, is seen in the everyday relationships that we engage in. And so he starts out, he says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. He begins with this reminder to his loved ones. Some translations say beloved. My loved ones, remember he goes back to his theme. Remember the theme of 1 Peter? He said, this isn't your home, so don't act like it. This isn't your home. You are aliens and strangers in this world, so don't live, don't desire what the world, the sinful things that the world desires. And last week, you know, I, I think the reason that he begins with desires is because our actions follow our desires. Our actions follow our desires. To say it another way, we always do what we want to do. We always do what we want to do. Now you say, well, sometimes I, I'm able to abstain from temptation or things that I... Well, that's because you desire... Your desire not to do it is greater than your desire to do it. We always do what we truly desire. And sometimes you might look at something and say, I really want to do it, but I'm not going to do it. That's because you have a greater motivation to be maybe accepted by the people around you or to feel good about yourself. But we're always doing... We're always going to follow our strongest desire. And that's why last week we heard Peter, his message was to crave, desire, to want pure spiritual milk, to desire Christ. Because there is, as he says here in verse 11, there is this competing, there's this war that's being waged in our souls. And we can feel that sometimes, can't we? We can feel that battle between the, the Holy Spirit and our old sinful nature, this ego that wants us to be the center of the universe, that wants to just go after whatever we want to go after. And Peter says here, he says, abstain, which literally meant, he said, constantly hold yourselves back from these desires. Don't go there, and here's why. Verse 12, live such good lives 
See how he, he starts with desires. He starts with your, what you want, because what you want dictates how you live. And if you, can, if you can abstain from those sinful desires, then you will live a good life. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that why? Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This is exactly what Leslie was just talking about. What one, dug, what one dug's audience over was not his ability to quote scripture at them, was not his ability to preach these polished, eloquent, three-point, Billy Graham-styled sermons at these people. What won them over was him carrying a sick man to a hole to relieve himself. And if we want to reach this world around us, we have to show them the hope that lives inside of us. And we show them that by the way that we live, by the way that we treat each other. And so Peter points us to these really practical, practical ways that we are to live as citizens, as, as slaves, and as spouses. And the place where he starts here is a pretty soft spot for us. He starts in the realm of politics, in the realm of government. And I remember growing up as a kid, I loved summers. Summers were the best, because you weren't in school, you ate SpaghettiOs like every day for lunch, I remember taking bike rides. Here's me and my sister terrorizing the neighborhood on our tricycle. Then as I got older, we found, the, remember the trampoline? The summer we first got a trampoline transformed my life. I was never the same again. Apparently I, I didn't have a lot of friends to join me. Even my sister has abandoned me at this point. But I look like I'm having a good time. Um, loved summers, loved everything about them. But probably the thing that kind of stands out, imprints on my mind when I think about each summer, one of the things that kind of defines each summer was the babysitter. Do you remember that growing up? The babysitters you had, some of them were great, some of them not so great, some of them crazy, some of them had these kind of approaches, right? I love the little duck that's hanging out next to her. I didn't have any that went this route, but we did have one weird babysitter in particular. It was, I don't know why, but every time around lunchtime, she would pretend to transform into this crazy Russian house dictator, and she took on this persona, I think it was Olga or Helga or something like that. It's really weird, and she would yell at us and make us go into our rooms and would lock us in our rooms and things that we probably should have called OCS or our parents about or something, but um, not, nothing too extreme, but it was weird. But, but what happened, in my parents' infinite wisdom, they decided that while, we, while they were gone at work, that we needed some supervision, right? That we needed someone to keep the peace from, from killing each other, someone to keep us from doing the right thing and to not do the wrong thing. And they delegated their authority to the babysitter. And the reason that we were to obey the babysitter was because it was ultimately obeying my parents, right? Obedience unto her was obedience unto them. And I was to be respectful to the babysitter because that's what would honor my parents. That's what they would desire from me. That's what would please them, that I would respect the authority that they put in place. And that respect wasn't just outward obedience, right? What they expected from us was not just to do what the babysitter said to do, but to actually respect them, just to be kind to them in our words. And even if we disagreed, which I've been known to do from time to time, what really mattered the most was what mom and dad thought when they came home, right? There was a degree, disagreement with the babysitter. What mattered was how did I conduct myself, and is this a thing I'm going to get spanked over or not, Right? And, and sometimes, sometimes, if, if the babysitter ever went somewhere that w- said that we could do something that our parents said no to, like, she says, hey, yeah, you're allowed to watch this rated R movie. I'm cool with that. We'd say, you know what? 
respectfully, I'm going to abstain from watching that movie because that would not please my parents. It's exactly how the scenario always played out. <laughs> but if there was, if they're handing you like a pistol or, you know, narcotics or something, you're like, no, my parents, like that crosses the line. Like my mom and dad wouldn't, that wouldn't make them happy, right? So if the babysitter and what my parents said were in conflict, then I'm going to obey my parents, right? Extreme situations that I didn't really find myself in. Verse 13. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. The call here is to submit. The word submit, submission means to obey or to put oneself under the authority of. Paul sa- Peter says, you need to put yourself under the authority, you need to obey who? Every authority instituted among men. So this would include your parents, this would include your boss, this would include the government, include crazy Russian babysitters. This is anybody that God has put over you in authority, we're called to obey them. Now, there are some false motives. We don't obey because of the punishment that might come. That's not, according to Peter here, that's not our primary motivation, is to obey so we don't get punished, so that we don't get spanked, so that we don't get fired, so that we don't go to jail. He says that's not your primary motivation. And your primary motivation is not because you have decided that that authority is good, that I like my parents, or I think we have a good administration in place, or I love, I think I have a great boss. Now, because of that, I'm going to obey him. He says that's not our primary motivation. What, is the, what should fuel us? What should be the reason that we obey? He says it at the top in 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. If we miss this, we miss the most important thing in this verse. The reason that we submit and obey authority, our ultimate motivation is to glorify him. Because it honors God to submit and obey to those that he's put over us. It brings glory to him. We we obey to glorify and honor him, and also because he has instituted that authority in the first place. You go over at Romans 13. Romans 13, 1, Paul says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority, no authority, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So when I obeyed my babysitter, ultimately, it was an obedience to my parents. And what it communicated was that I trusted them and their de- decision to hire somebody and their decision to put that person in my And I, it was a trust and an obedience to my parents and their goodness and provision to me. And so when we submit and trust and we, we obey authority that God's put in our lives, ultimately we're saying, God, I trust you. And I trust you to be good and to provide for me and that you are sovereign. And we look that president in the eye and we say, I submit to you, not for your sake, but for his sake. When we are driving down the road and we make the decision to obey the speed limit, it's not so that we avoid a ticket it's not because we've decided this is a reasonable speed limit. Okay, have you ever drive through Sterling and there's like 10 lanes and we're going 45 miles an hour? Are you kidding me? 
The reason that we obey that speed limit is because driving and driving at the speed limit can be an act of worship. We do it because it honors God. Verse 15, he says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Our primary motivation is for the Lord's sake, to honor him, and that submission ultimately to him. But now, Peter unpacks why God wants us to obey. This isn't just an arbitrary rule or decision. He says, here's why I want you to obey. Because submission to authority brings our actions above the line of reproach. And what, what he's saying is, you want to live a good life so that when people see your good works, they'll glorify him. That you live in a way that people, they can't badmouth you. Now, if you live lawfully, will people still badmouth you? Absolutely. And we all can think of in our lives that just seem so perfect, right? Like, when I remember being in school and you had that person. I remember this guy in college. He was good looking and he was smart and he was funny and he was athletic and he was, he was great in school and he was really respectful and I just couldn't stand him, right? Not because he did anything bad, because I was super jealous. Like, I wanted to be that guy, right? So you still, you still might be hated. And Peter, in this time, he's speaking to a bunch of people who are being persecuted by the Romans around them. He says, if you're going to be persecuted, don't let it be persecuted. Don't be persecuted for something that you've done wrong. It's not a holier-than-thou-art attitude. But when others talk about you, there's nothing that you're doing that can bring dishonor to him. So if you're a tax evader, or you're getting DUIs every other weekend, you're driving recklessly and thrown into the slammer, you've lost your witness. Because actions... As Doug Nichols told us, speak louder than words. Verse 16, it says, Live as free men, but do not use freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Now, this is interesting where he goes here. Um, a, a guy that commentated on this, Martin Luther, okay, not the guy that we get Mondays off in January for, the older white dude, he said this. He said, A Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. A perfectly dutiful servant of a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Now what in the world is he talking about there? In a nutshell, God has set us free from any human institution. That we don't ultimately answer to them. That he is our king in his kingdom, and therefore we bow the knee to one and one only, and that is God. But he says, as his slaves, as servants of God, because we're not our own. You can, you can serve sin, and, and, or you can serve God, but are never, the option is never to be autonomous, just to do what you want to do. We don't have that option. You have to serve somebody. So God says, as my slaves, I'm going to send you back into the world, and I want you to freely, voluntarily, place yourself under these authorities. Not because you ultimately answer to them, but because it will bring honor to me. And when people see you living in that manner, they will see your good works and they will glorify God. And they might, not come, they might come to know him through your actions. And then in verse 17, he summarizes his thoughts. He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. It's sort of like a ladder kind of that he, he builds here, kind of concentric circles. And he starts with this idea of respecting everyone. Every single person on this planet was created by God. And therefore they are valued by God. 
They are loved by him. Jesus came to this earth and died for every single human being. And because humans are valued and loved by God, we are to respect and value every single person. There might be many people, there are some who come to my mind, that I don't respect. This might be an area that God's calling you to clean up, to repent of these. There's, if this is, there's no exception here. To show respect in your thoughts and in your actions toward everyone. Then he goes on and says, love the brotherhood of believers. There is this special love that we have for the family of God. This special love. You think of a parent. Like, we're, we're called to love all the children of the world, right? Red and yellow, black or white. But do you not have a special love for your own children? Are you not called to provide and to protect and esteem and participate with your children in a manner that's different than those who are not your children? We will protect any child that's in danger. But your own children, there's a special love for them. He says there's a special love in the family of God. And then he says to fear God. There is a reverence and an awe that we are to have. A healthy, trembling, mouth-open fear that we're to have for God that we have for nobody else. We're not to fear man. He is the ultimate authority. He is holy and sovereign and perched on his throne. And we are called to fear him. But not just as a holy father that's distant, but as a father who is near and loves us. And then finally he comes full circle and he says, honor the king. Now the word here he's using is not king as in God. Honor the king as in the human king here on earth. And this word honor means to to esteem or to value, even to prize. That you respect and, and lift them up as a leader that God's put in place. Now, where I want to turn our attention is not so much external obedience to the law. I think that is a call, and if God, if the Spirit's knocking on your heart this morning, and there's some things you know that you're doing that are illegal, that they're doing that the government wouldn't approve of, then, then that's something that between you and the Lord, and that is something to consider. And certainly there are those in this room, I'm sure every one of us has broken a law at some point in time. If nothing else, that whole speed limit thing. Except for me. Um, we're not a church full of legal miscreants, you know, overall. We're not killing people all the time. You know, we're not doing all these things. But where I want to go, where I want to take this, and, and these thoughts, is toward our attitude. Guy on the right needs to tell the guy on the left, what's up? When we're told to honor our mother and our father, we're not just told, just not just do, just the external obedience. Just do what they say, Right? My, my mom or dad, they say, hey, you need to take out the trash. And you came over there and you're like, ugh, and you grab the trash and you throw it around. And you're going outside flinging trash everywhere. I hate the trash and I hate you guys. And they throw it into the garbage can there. Now, technically, I took out the trash, right? But in that process, did I honor my father and my mother? No, no. Because it's an attitude, it's, it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of your attitude, and your heart, and in your mind, the way that you respect them. That's what honors them, not just the obedience. And when we're told to honor the king, or in our case, the president, or the local governors that have been appointed over us, it's not just by abiding by the rules that they set. You might say, I follow all the laws. It's also how we talk about them, and how we think about them. What's in our heart Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the hands act. So I'm going to talk frankly here for a second. When I hear 
the conversations in our Christian community, and even specifically in our church, about this current administration and about President Obama, I wonder if we're hearing God's word here. And I see the Facebook posts. And I see the forwarded emails. And I hear the sarcasm, the jokes, the uncontrolled anger, the disrespect. And I wonder, are we honoring the king? And you might say, but you don't, Peter doesn't understand. I disagree with our current administration in very fundamental ways. Things that I think that they stand for that contradict the word of God. Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't know what we're facing. Think about that for a second. Remember what what the world that Peter has lived in? Peter is living under the, the, the Roman Empire with Nero, who is killing people for being Christians, stoning lighting on fire, crucifying people because that they are believers. This is the world that Peter lives in. Peter lives in a world, he grew up in a world with Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus and allowed an innocent man to be murdered. He grew up in a world with Herod, who had hundreds and hundreds of babies murdered to try to get to Jesus. Who had John the Baptist beheaded on his wife's whim at a dance party and allowed Jesus to be mocked, ridiculed, tortured, and killed. Peter understands a world where you don't totally agree with your leaders. In fact, in a way that we don't understand, and hopefully we never have to go through that. And thank God that we have a voice in our nation, right? I mean, Peter didn't have that luxury. He couldn't vote against the tyrannical party, right? Peter didn't have that choice. And we can disagree with our... I'm not saying you have to buy in wholesale to what any particular leader, including a boss or anybody, has to say. Go about that in a respectful manner. We can... And we have so many outlets in our country. We can vote. We can peaceably, peaceably assemble. We can speak out. There are things that we ought to stand up for. Think about the, the, those who have come before us, Martin Luther King, that in the nonviolent resistance. There are ways to speak up for what you believe is right and the change that you want to see. But the bottom line issue is, do we respect and honor those who God has put in authority over us? Barack Obama is a person. It's a person that was created by God. He is valued, respected, and loved by our maker. Therefore, he is to be respected and valued and loved by us. And he has been put by God in authority over us, and we are to honor, esteem, prize, and respect him. And one, not only that, we're called, and Timothy says, we're called to pray for our leaders. We're called to pray for them. And he says, you're blessed when you're persecuted. He said, you're blessed when you're persecuted. When, when the government comes against you, and, and even if they harm you for doing right, he says, there's a bigger picture here, and God will please you. God will bless you for that in light of eternity. And one day, you and me and Barack and Nero are all going to stand before our creator, the one true judge, and we're going to answer to him for what we did and what we thought. We're not answering to the Supreme Court. 
We're not answering to human institutions. And one specific topic, and I know it's extremely sensitive, and there are people in our room who are going to be on very different sides of this in general. We're going to talk for just one second about abortion. Hatred toward Obama or his administration or another person in the community for their stance on abortion or their involvement in abortion is ultimately hypocritical. For us to hate someone for murder, remember what Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same as what? It's the same as murder. Hatred towards someone for that stance is hypocritical. Now, are we to take a stance, and I think that is one personal belief, is that I need to do more to speak up for the murder of innocent babies. And we need to find ways that we can speak up and protect them who have no ability to protect themselves. So the issue isn't whether you believe that's right or wrong, but how do we go about it? And if we are hateful toward those who are on the other side of that issue, we're no better. And we're not honoring the king, and we're not trusting God. You know, personal application for myself is, I think, and some of you in this room might be more toward where I am. It's not, I don't so much struggle with, like, hatred toward the, the political leaders. I can drift more toward apathy. And I think for some of us in this room, we're like, I don't care. I don't even know who they are, you know. And for some of us, we need to become more politically conscious. Not because that's where we put our hopes, but because if we're called to pray for our leaders and to respect them, then we need to know their names. And we need to know who they are and what's going on about, around us. And I know also my attitude toward, this isn't just the government. This is attitude toward all authority. And I see it in my heart and the words that I say, how venomous they can be toward people that are put over me. Especially in the, in the, in the world of, of sports. <laughs> I struggle with this. I really do. Sometimes I want to put him in a half Nelson. We, we since the Garden of Eden... Since the Garden of Eden, man has been rebelling against authority. Because one of, that central, one of those central things that wages war in our soul is a desire to be alone. Adam and Eve didn't like, they wanted to be like God. They didn't like the idea of him occupying that throne all by himself, and they wanted to share that, or even better yet, shove him off and sit on it himself. And any other authority in our lives, whatever kind it is, is a threat to our throne occupation. And so we want to rebel. I, am, I do great submitting with, to leaders as long as they agree with me, right? And as soon as that stops, the rebellion in my heart grows. When I fail to obey and honor and respect school administration, the political administration, whoever it is, what I'm really saying is that I don't trust God. What I'm really saying is I don't believe you're good. I don't believe you're going to provide. I don't believe you're sovereign. And also, it's an issue of fear. We need to be so careful about where we really put our hope. Our hope cannot be in the Republican Party. Our hope cannot be in the Democratic Party. Our hope cannot be in the Constitution of the United States of America. There's only one sure foundation for our hope, and it's not here on earth. Remember, the story of Doug Nichols taught us that the world will not accept our words if they don't see it in our actions. And if we live and we're sarcastic and we're, we're, we are not, we're dishonorable and we're disrespectful to authority at whatever work, in the political realm, in the home life, if, if we're living just like the rest of the world, maybe we just vote a little bit differently, 
Remember, they're going to see us and go, what's the difference between you and I? And they will not see our good works, and they will not glorify God. So where I want to end this morning is in a time of prayer. Second, First Timothy chapter 2 says to pray for those who are over us in authority. I think it's easier to be a critic than to offer solutions. It's much easier to say, don't do this, don't do that. But what are we called to instead? And I believe it's a lot harder to hate somebody, to disrespect somebody, if you're interceding before the throne for them, if you're praying for them. And so what I want to do is this. I'm going to put some, the pictures and names up of some leaders here. Um, President Obama and, and, of course, his administration. Um, the governor, Sean Parnell. Our senators, Mark Begich and Lisa Murkowski. Pray for both of them. Borough Mayor Mike Navarre, and I thought, man, how cool. His chief of staff, you might know him, Paul Ostrander. He's one of our, one of our own uh, brothers here at the church. And, of course, there are many others that we didn't have time to put up there. What I want to do is just take a couple minutes and to get with groups of two or three or four, um, you know, just somebody who's near you. And if you, maybe you're new here and you don't feel comfortable with that, um, and you just want to pray, you and the Lord, or maybe the people around you really smell, or I don't know, whatever your situation is out there, that's fine. I don't want anybody to be like, this is weird, I've never done this. Um, with groups or by yourself, whatever you want to do, but just take a few minutes, and I want us to pray. Pray for wisdom and discernment for our leaders, but I think even more so that these are, these are those who God longs to have a relationship with, and we don't know the spirit. We don't know the spiritual status of our leaders, for sure. No one knows but between you and God, and so more than anything, to be praying for their eternity, to be praying for their souls, that they would crave Christ and taste and see that he is good and know him as their savior. So we're going to take a few minutes, and in that transition time, as this is a time of worship through the, through the word and through prayer, we'll transition then into a time of worship through song. Jacob and the band will come back up, and that'll be kind of your cue to transition. Jacob will lead you into our, our, our next um, worship through singing. Um, so just take a few minutes there and pray with each other or pray to the Lord, and then we'll transition into some song.